0: Diana, the language that Castro was speaking—Vivine, spoken by the wild girls of the woods. You know, the first time that I met Thad, he was speaking some sort of invented language. He couldn't have been more than five. Hmm. That was the second time, actually. Oh, lord! Was a long time ago.
1: So we're starting off the new Star Trek book year with a big name and a big title, and we're really excited to talk about this one. Welcome everyone to the Positively Trek Book Club. I'm Dan Gunther. With me as he is every week is the wonderful Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great because I'm so ready to talk about this book.
1: Oh, me too. I'm really excited about this. So Yeah, we have Star Trek Picard, of course, the new series that premiered last year in 2020, and we've had one book so far by Una McCormick, Last Best Hope, last year, and this year we have a new book, The Dark Veil, by author James Swallow, and we are honoured to have the author himself join us for this episode. So James, welcome to Positively Trek.
0: Hey guys, thanks for having me. Nice to be here.
1: Excellent. Really happy to have you aboard. Now you've joined us before on our show that we used to be on Literary Treks that's now hosted by uh, Matt and Chris over on the Trek FM network. So, you know, we're we're kind of familiar with talking with you, but for the listeners out there who maybe haven't listened to that show and are just listening to Positively Trek, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with uh, writing for Star Trek uh, and maybe especially Uh, your experience with the Titan novel line, because I think that's going to feature pretty prominently in what we're talking about today.
0: Okay, well, my kind of nerd origin story, then my Star Trek origin story is, um, originally I was a a magazine journalist. I used to write about the Star Trek TV series. Uh, Off the back of that, I got the opportunity to uh, go to Paramount and pitch a few Star Trek story ideas. And I sold two original story ideas, which were made into episodes of Voyager. So I kind of cut my teeth. My very first writing credits were were working on a Star Trek TV show, but I wanted to do more. And so when I came back to the UK, I was thinking, well, there's, there's no Star Trek show being made here. How can I keep writing about Star Trek? So the most logical option was for me to talk to pocketbooks about doing work in Star Trek novels. So I wrote a couple of short stories for a, a Voyager and a TNG anthology. Off the back of that, the editor at the time, Marco Palmieri, said to me, well, would you like to write novels for us? And my first Star Trek novel was uh, a Deep Space Nine prequel, part of the Terok Nor series. And off the back of that, I've been lucky enough to write um, pretty much maybe like one Star Trek novel every kind of year, year and a half uh, in that time since then. Among the books I've done, I've written, uh, as you say, just recently, my newest book is a Star Trek Picard tie I've previously written a Star Trek Discovery tie I've written uh, in the classic Trek era. I've written in the, the movie era. Uh, but one of my most favorite areas to write in was the Star Trek Titan series, which carries on the adventures of William Riker and Deanna Troy aboard the USS Titan, following on from the end of Star Trek Nemesis, where we see them go off onto their own starship. And we've had that series going on now for, for several years, over a decade, pretty much. Um, my first book in that series was a novel called Synthesis. Uh, followed that up with another one called Sight Unseen and also a book in the four miniseries called The Poison Chalice. Uh, Bringing me right up to date with the Picard novel, although it is a uh, Picard series book and tied into that television series, it also ties into the Titan mythology because it is a story about Riker and Troy and their adventures, but in the the kind of the parallel timeline of the Picard TV show rather than the the timeline that we created with the novels.
2: Yeah, and see, that's what I was so excited about when I heard this novel coming out because I've read, of course, all the Titan novels. So has Dan. And then we knew we were going to see Titan with Riker and Troy in this Picard continuity. And I was very interested to see how you're going to write all that together. So which we'll get into here on the show. But uh, yeah, I was very excited about getting into this book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is one. And I remember kind of the first announcement of this book and the revelation of the cover and stuff. And a lot of us fans were kind of saying, oh, it's it's basically a Star Trek Titan novel. And that is definitely the case. Like there's, there's definitely it's, it's centered obviously on the Titan, but I think at its heart, it is definitely a Star Trek Picard novel. Like, I think it fits really well in with what we've seen in that series and, and the reality that's been kind of shown to us through the evolution of the Star Trek universe as, as seen in that series as well. Uh, I'm curious as to where the, the idea for this novel came from the overall story where did that originate and how did that evolve into what we got with this novel?
0: Well, the um, it's an interesting question. Uh, originally, we were discussing uh, how to fill in some of the backstory for the Star Trek Picard TV series. And, uh, you know, if you've seen the show, I mean, I, I'm assuming we're OK to talk about spoilers for Picard season one. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay, right. So, if you've seen that show, you know that it has a very kind of tight continuity. Is that the stories flow straight from one into the other? So, you couldn't really shoehorn a story in between episodes of that show. Which meant that if we were going to write Picard tie novels, they had to be stories that would kind of orbit around the outside. So, prequel stories or side stories, hopefully building out some of the background of the characters and the situations that they were in. With Una's story, um, with Una's novel, The Last Best Hope, that's very much filling in the gaps around Picard's resignation and all the events that kind of come together to, to build that out. When it came for, for me to, to write my novel, I was working with um, Kirsten Beyer, uh, one of our fellow authors from the Star Trek Voyager series who has since now gone up to work on uh, the TV show as a producer and a writer. And Kirsten said, well, you know, we've, we've got a few ideas here. And we first talked about doing a Seven of Nine novel because Seven of Nine plays an important role in the show. And there's, there's this big gap between well, what happened to her before between the end of Voyager and where we see her pick up again in Star Trek Picard. There's a lot of interesting hints of the narrative that she has going on in that time period. So we talked a lot about that. And um, I had some really cool ideas, and I was quite engaged about that. But the more we talked about it, the more we realized that it was probably an idea that would fit better in the TV show rather than in the novel so the kind of the agreement was well we'll keep our powder dry on that one and we'll you know we'll look at exploring that sort of narrative in a different way so we started looking at what other characters have appeared in the show and what background and what stories would people would the readers want to read and we talked a lot about Riker and Troy and Wolf as the these three enterprise characters two of which we see in the show we see Riker and Troy in their retirement and we hear um, a little bit we got Wolf is mentioned but you know we never really see what happened to him but there's that suggestion that Worf was, you know, promoted to captain of the Enterprise after Picard uh, resigns from Starfleet. And that was an interesting idea about how would Worf deal with having to be pushed from being first officer, being captain, you know, in a situation that perhaps he didn't want to have happen. You know, it's, he doesn't want to become captain that way. It's suddenly Picard's gone and he has to take over. And it's like, would he feel under pressure? Would he feel ready for the job? You know, there's there's a lot of good dramatic juice there. That was one idea we looked at. The other idea we were looking at was what was the backstory of Riker and Troy during the same time period before we see them, before we see them as retirees, basically, uh, in the show. And I thought to myself, the Riker and Troy story was the one that really kind of appealed to me because they're my favorite couple in Star Trek. And uh, I've always loved writing them in the Titan novels. And to me, it felt like a no brainer as I knew these characters really well. I felt really at home with them. And I said, this is the story I want to tell. Let's let's go with that. So I chose to, to pursue that avenue. And that gradually evolved into the narrative of The Dark Vale. I had uh, a Titan novel idea that I'd been sitting on for a few years. I used some elements of that, folded that in as well so I could tell those stories. I brought some new characters and new elements into this version of the Titan. And then I also tried to reach back into the Litverse Titan that we'd written about And bring some characters for that from that in as well so i'm trying to kind of in this novel sort of like weave a course between these two different pulse stars, these two different versions of titan to create uh, a new version of the narrative
1: that's interesting i your your talk about seven of nine i initially and i told this to bruce ages ago i would have put money on the first tie-in novel being a seven of nine backstory. So that's funny that that was kind of discussed there. Yeah. So close, but, uh, but I love this. I love that we get Riker and Troy. I think uh, this was a terrific way to uh, bring the Picard backstory in. And the fact that we're dipping into the lit verse of Titan too, I think really brings a lot of joy to my heart and a lot of the uh, Treklet fans hearts out there. And I was curious how you chose which elements to carry over. So we see, for example, uh, Commander Vale is a part of this. Uh, the tactical officer, Lieutenant Carew, is here as well. Was there any thought to any other characters to bring through, or, or how did that decision
0: kind of get made? Well, there's also um, Engineer Karen McCready, who's also a character I brought over from, from Titan, because um, she's named after a, a friend of mine who's a fellow uh, science fiction author, and I put that in there just as a, a little nod to my friend, and she's a cool character. Um, yeah, well, we, um, Kirsten and I, we discussed this quite a lot, um, because initially I said, well, how many people can I bring across from the litverse? verse? How many can we kind of canonise in this novel, to, to call it that? And we originally, the thinking was, let's make it a completely new cast of characters, only Riker and Troy being the only ones that we were familiar with. But I felt like that would be missing an opportunity, because there's a lot of energy that we've created used in creating these characters from the litverse and I know that there was a lot of readers who would really want to see some representation of that and I thought we'd be missing a trick if we didn't put some of those characters in and I said the obvious one has to be Christine Vale because she's the most popular litverse character on the Titan I think and readers I think really wanted to see her in that role and Kirsten really liked um, Carey and she said, well, you know, let's have Carry too, because I feel like he's got a lot of energy that we could bring to it. And, uh, and then as I, was, as I was writing the novel, I thought, well, I'll bring back Karen McCready as the engineer and then build out a few new faces just to pad out the crew, the bridge crew and introduce um, some, some new characters. So it's not exactly the same as the Titan characters that, that you would be familiar with from the Litverse books.
2: So, yeah, when we heard the announcement of this and that you were writing this book, I remember saying at the time, I want to see some of these characters from the Titan series that we've gotten into this story. And I said to Dan, I, I, I just know James is going to work something in. he's got to work something <laughs> in, and he better because then I'll be after him for not doing it. So thank <laughs> you for standing up for us in this because I'm one of those fans that wanted to see that.
0: And I mean, you know, I, I always say, as, as much as I'm somebody who's writing these books, I read these books, too. You know, I'm, right. a, I'm a fan of these characters. Um, so I always ask myself the question when I'm doing this is, is, if I was the reader reading this book, what do I want to see as somebody who likes reading Star Trek novels? And I would want to see Christine Vale. If someone else was writing this book, I would be going, why haven't you brought Christine Vale back? She's cool. So I'm answering that question for myself. Let's bring her back because she's a great character. Because she has, there's a great chemistry between Riker and Troy and Vale in that kind of the the triumvirate of the command crew. You know, to me that's always been a mainstay of Star Trek. You know, the Kirk Spock McCoy dynamic, right? And and it, mm. you you see it play out different ways with different people in different shows. And the Kirk Spock McCoy dynamic is Riker, Vale, Troy in the, on the Titan. So I wanted to play that out in this situation, in this new iteration, as it were. Absolutely. Now
2: I'm sure you were done writing this book before the lower decks episode came out at the end of the season that showed somebody else sitting in that chair. That's right.
0: First officer.
2: Yeah. Any ideas in your head of who that character was?
0: Uh, Obviously I'm, I'm I'm just thinking that, you know, uh, Vale was on vacation that day. (laughs) Right. That's what I'm thinking too. (laughs) I guess it could be somebody from, uh, from the, it was beta shift, I guess. I don't know, you know, uh, I don't know who that Saurian character is. Um, They don't appear in the novel. It's a shame really because um we, we kind of didn't really sync up as well as we could have with that because I, I think if I'd have known about that, I would have written a character in, even just in the background, like walking past to give Riker a clipboard or something. But you know, we can't we can't always make sort of like every note hit. But yeah, I just think if people say to me, well, where is Vale? Where's Vale? It's like she was on vacation that day. Right. Yeah. yeah
2: That's what absolutely. I was thinking too. She's or she's in the bathroom. <laughs> I don't know. She's just somewhere.
0: You know what it is? She just can't stand Boimler. She doesn't want to be on the bridge. (laughs) That's what it is. That's it. They do not get on. That's what it is, obviously.
2: (laughs) Well, and the other characters from the Titan books, I like to think since this book takes place in uh, 2386, that the other characters may have served on the Titan before this year, and they're just not on the ship anymore. You know, it's possible.
0: Yeah, I mean, because you know that that last scene of lower decks where you know the Titan arrives, that is several years before the events of the Dark Veil. Vale. So again, people had said to me, um, "What is Boimler in this story?" Because he's you know he's a, he's a Titan crew member, and I'm like, "There's there's several years gap between these stories, so that's why he's he's not on board." You know, obviously, you know, poor guy, he screwed up, he got kicked off. That's obviously what happened.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I do like that it's not just the characters that are brought over from Titan as well. There are some story elements and some things that get a mention. For example, the fact that the Titan and the Luna class starships were kind of this test bed for a more diverse uh, kind of non, not necessarily humanoid crew and all this sort of stuff. I like that that was kind of brought in and I've seen online, even Michael Chabon was talking about uh Thaddeus wharf Troy Riker <laughs> Riker's uh Riker and Troy's son and how his outlook on life was influenced by the Titans formerly more diverse uh crew and that sort of thing and and that idea. So I want to talk a little bit about Thaddeus now. So what was your inspiration for how Thad was depicted in the novel and kind of how much was the description from Nepenthe a factor and, and how much was kind of your interpretation of, of where this character came from and how he was as a kid?
0: Well, it's kind of three, there's, there's three factors in there. I mean, first of all, the, the notes that you were referring to that, that uh, Michael Shabon's put up online, um, I was given those very early on. So um, that was kind of like, I, I had an understanding of what Chabon's concept of that little boy was and where he came from and and, and the elements that c- connected him back into the Titan crew so I was drawing on that obviously as well drawing from uh, what's said about him in the Penthe because of course in that episode we never meet him we never see him but what we do see is we kind of see the echo of him we see the impact he's had on other people's lives but we never see the boy himself so I I was unpicking all of that, kind of drawing back, thinking, well, you know, if this is the way that people reacted to him, what was he like when he was around? So those two elements. And the other stuff I based it on was basically my nieces and nephews, because I wanted to make sure that when I wrote him, he's just a little kid, but he's smart and he's precocious. And I mean his mum and dad are Riker and Troy, right? And what kind of kid is going to come from parents like that? You know, you can imagine that he's going to be a little bit of a troublemaker. He's going to be a little bit reckless, but he's also going to have a good heart because that's, I can believe that's the kind of child that those two parents would bring into the world. So I, I, I kind of pulled all those elements together and I wanted to really do the best job I could to make him feel like a real kid. Because a lot of the time when children are written, especially you see this a lot in science fiction, the kind of the trope of the sort of genius kid. I mean, Wesley Crusher suffers really badly from being poorly written, I think, in TNG. You know, I think he's a great character, but he was very badly served because he's always given this sort of stereotypical kind of behaviour. I wanted to make sure I didn't write Thad in the same way. I wanted him to be smart and I wanted him to have agency and momentum in the story, but I wanted to do it in a way that feels like this is a real kid. This is a real six year old boy. And that he feels true and honest to not only that concept, but also you could believe that this is the child of Will Riker and Deanna Troy.
2: Yeah, because he's inspired by them, because he keeps wanting to explore, because that's what his parents are, explorers. And to him, that's what life is, is going out and exploring things, which gets him into the trouble.
0: I mean, he's, he's living on a starship, you know, and he has this kind of the 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 missing element for this kid is he doesn't he feels like he doesn't have a home I mean he does he's got his family and he's got his starship but he doesn't feel like he has a home in the sense of like having a planet to live on having a house and those kind of things and he's so he's kind of rootless but he's driven by these two emotions one is like he's searching for something he's searching for a home of his own but he's also being driven by this ability he has to to sort of understand and grasp language and, and sort of see things from different people's points of view. And he's being driven by the energy that comes from his parents, which, as you say, is like they're both explorers. They're both people who've dedicated their lives to kind of knowing the unknown. So that is definitely kind of coming out through their son.
2: And they're the commanders of the starship, which... It's a little different because I always hear about the preacher's kids, you know, that they're the ones always get in trouble because they think they can get away with stuff because their parent is the, the minister of the church. In some ways, you could say Thaddeus could be like that, too. He feels like maybe he could get away with it, but it kind of backfires on him, too.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think definitely um, he does kind of take advantage a little bit. And I can, you can imagine that there have been other times where, you know, he's gotten away with stuff because his dad's the captain. Um, and in this story, that kind of comes back to bite him in the backside, which I think is all fair.
1: I do like that moment where he decides to play that card with his friends just one time too yeah, too true. often. And yeah, they, there's a backlash there where they're like, you can't always just say that.
0: Because <laughs> again, I mean, I didn't want him to be the perfect child, right? You know, I mean, uh, he sometimes, you know, he's a, little, a bit of a little git at times, right? And he does kind of, you know, he, he does step out of line. But then that's what kids do, right? Is There's... Even a moment I put in the story where one of the other characters says, you know, children push their limits because that's how they learn how the boundaries work. You know, so you can't blame them for trying.
2: Yeah. And we're going to, of course, get into spoil. I mean, we're already going to get into spoilers if anybody's familiar with the show. But would Thaddeus have really any close friends on the ship or does this, quote, friend that he makes on here is the closest to a friend he's felt like he's ever had?
0: I think... I got the sense that like i think he would have been a a kind of gregarious kid i mean he's he's definitely like lives in his head a lot that's definitely you know with him kind of creating his own language and and designing his own planet and i think there's a lot of that going on but at the same time i think because Riker and troy are both people who were very outgoing i think there would be an element of that between them so i think as a child i think he would definitely have friends but whether he would have like a really, really close friend, like a best friend who we confide everything in. I don't know if he'd have that. I think he'd be too inward looking to have somebody who would be his total confidant.
1: Well, one thing that we do know, of course, about Thad uh, from the Picard series is he has a very tragic future ahead of him. And I was curious when you were crafting this novel and creating the character that we see in the pages of this book, how did that reality kind of serve to inform how you were writing him and knowing where his character was ultimately going to go?
0: Well, there are some uh if you if you read carefully through the story, you can see I'm kind of laying the key of this tragic story that you know, the eventual fate that's gonna come across him. But what I wanted to do more than anything is because you get the sense in the episodes where you in in, this, in the penthe where you see what people feel about that and and you can see that he was obviously very loved and there was something about him that that people really enjoyed his company and people you know loved him very deeply and so i wanted to create a character that you as the reader would feel a little bit of that so i want you to be a little sad at the end of the story that oh it's such a shame that this this great kid never got uh you know the to, to fulfill his potential so it is a tragic story but also i wanted to make it kind of celebrate who he is as well. It's like you find out why he was fun to hang out with, what was great about him. So, you know, you hopefully you come to the end of the story, you're sad that he's gone, but you share something with the characters in the story because you share a little bit of their, you know, their enjoyment that they knew him and their sadness at his loss.
2: And you see how much he means to Riker and Troy that you even feel even more for them that when they lose him, how tough that was for them.
0: Yeah, Definitely because I, I didn't want to tell the story of like how he passes away because i felt like that just felt to me like that would be manipulative because i'd rather tell a story about thad sort of at the height of his powers you know when he was just running around having the best time ever and i thought like, that's the version of the character i want readers to to take away at the end of the story
1: yeah I, and i think that comes across really well in this novel i feel like and i mean i i I've never written a novel. I don't know anything about crafting a good story that anybody's interested in reading anyway. And I feel like the tendency would be to kind of have that as something hanging over the story that would be, you know, I don't know, creating this kind of dark mood around it. But I love that you're able to, to create this bright and wonderful character so much so that when you're reading this, sometimes you kind of forget where it's all going and you're just kind of in the moment. And I, I really appreciated that, even though, like you said, you are kind of laying the groundwork for what's to come, but it's, it never feels oppressive, if that makes sense.
0: And that, that's exactly what I was aiming for, is I didn't want you to be reading every, every page he turns out and thinking, oh, this poor little guy, he's got a terrible future ahead of him. I wanted you to be, like you say, in the moment, enjoying the, enjoying the story, enjoying the, the action and adventure as he's being carried along in it.
2: Yeah, and it's not like you put in things where Riker is saying, "Well, one day, son, you could grow up to be a captain." Or Troy's like, "Oh, I'm waiting for one day when you make me a grandpa." Like, it's not like they keep talking about the future where you're like, "Oh, we'll never see that day." Oh, where <laughs> you just keep pumping that, you know? You just because the characters don't know what the future is going to hold, so we should just treat that the same with the reader. It's like you know, this is just a day in the life of these people. It just it's a big day in their life, but there's no signs of what's going to happen later in
0: his life. I mean, I can't assume that people reading this book have actually seen that episode of the show. Right. You know, that's true. And, yeah. And uh, I'm sure there are people, maybe, there must be people that will probably read this book and then watch that episode and then go, Oh my God, that lovely kid. Oh, it's terrible. You know, and, and they'll be saddened by them.
2: That absolutely could happen.
0: I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that sort of thing. You know, the, the guy in the war movie who shows you the photos of his wife and kids. Right. And it's right. Like, right. Because that's just exactly just way too on the nose. You know, it's it's Thad's story is a celebration of this kid's life, and that's what I wanted it to be.
2: And that's one thing I really liked about this novel is because just this is just me. I was going into this thinking, Oh, this is a tight novel. I know it says Picard on it. But I'm going into thinking, well, you know, James has written other tight novels. This is in this continuity, and there'll be some probably some elements of Picard, but it's a it's a titan novel but then as i'm reading it and especially getting more than half you know getting halfway through it realizing this really connects a lot to picard this really is a backstory in a lot of ways to picard and i really appreciate that because i felt like i was getting no pun intended the best of both worlds of getting a titan novel and a picard novel into one
0: yeah i mean because i'd seen i'd seen some people online saying um oh this is just a titan novel with a picard sticker on it and that's that's absolutely wrong. It's, that's not what it is. This is from the ground up. It, it's, not, it's not a Titan novel with Picard in it. It's a Picard novel with a Titan in it. It's, it was built from the ground up to be a novel that is absolutely 100% connected to the Picard narrative. It just happens to be featuring characters that we're familiar with and situations that we're familiar with from the Titan Live verse. I wanted to do that best of both worlds thing. I wanted it to be a book where if you like the Titan novels, you can come to this and you can feel comfortable. You can feel familiar. And it's like, this is, this is definitely part of that world. Slightly different, but it's definitely part of that world. And if you come to it as somebody who's never read a Titan novel and all you know about is Picard, it will also feel correct to you. If I've, in fact, I've had uh, a few comments from people already saying, oh, I never read the Titan novels, but now I'm going to because people who came to Picard as fans and have read the Picard books because they want to read more about Picard. And now they're interested in picking up the Titan novels because interested in that character dynamic and seeing how that played out.
1: Oh, you love to hear that. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Well, yeah, this really, like Bruce and like Bruce, you said, this really is a, a Picard novel, the backdrop of it, the events that are informing it, of course, we have the, the Romulan supernova, which is still pending at that this time. It's, it's still a little ways off, but it's after the Mars attack and after the Federation has withdrawn support from the Romulan evacuation. And all of that is kind of the backdrop for the story. And the state of the Federation at the moment is not great. You know, everyone's kind of on edge. It's more insular. It's more inward looking. And I was curious writing that reality from the perspective of the Titan crew and Riker and Troy specifically. What was it like, kind of writing that version of Starfleet and the Federation with our hero characters and their kind of outlook and perspective that we're used to uh, seeing?
0: Well, again, this kind of like talks about the the, the definition between the Picard version of the storyline and the Titan version of the storyline. Is in the Titan books. Um, Definitely things are much more hopeful and, you know, the Federation isn't in such a sort of hawkish place as it is uh, in the Picard storyline. What I wanted to show with the characters was, like you say, how they reflect the changed reality around them. Specifically, you know, with um, Picard resigning, my first thought was if I'm writing a novel about Riker and Troy in the wake of that event, how would they have reacted to that decision you know, did did he tell them that he was he was thinking about doing that before he went into that meeting? I don't think he would have. I think Picard went in there saying, well, if you don't do this, I'll resign, expecting them to say, oh, okay, don't resign. We'll help you. And they show him the door. I think that Will and Deanna would be shocked and surprised that Picard had made that choice. And then finding themselves in a situation going, well, what do we do now? Do we resign as well and and support our friend? Or do we stay in and try and do something about it. And my decision was that I think what felt truest to the characters was that Riker and Troy would say, well, if we're outside the tent, we can't affect what's going on inside. So we're going to stay in Starfleet and we're going to try our best to modify things and try and create an influence there that hopefully will guide the Federation Starfleet back to the ideals that are the truest and noblest at our core. And in fact, there's even a, a scene at the end of the book where, um, I have Riker kind of says that to the Jazari, the, the alien species that uh, also appears in the novel that, you know, we may have lost our way, but we are working to kind of come back to it. So there's very much a sense of that. There's a tension all through this story with these characters feeling that they've, Starfleet's kind of veered away from the true beliefs, that they, the reasons they joined up. And they're trying to pull that back and doing their absolute level best to try and make things go back to the way they were.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, these characters, they're so idealistic and and optimistic, and it's it's definitely sad to see what's happened through their eyes, but you really get that feeling that they've doubled down on their commitment. And as Bruce said, we're getting into spoilers. We're going to spoil kind of what's going on in this book. But by the end of the novel, we find out there's there's kind of a clandestine thing going on between The Titan and the Enterprise and a few other ships kind of in the area that are still doing what they can on the edges of of the Federation here to help the Romulans, which I thought was a really interesting and fun revelation. And I'm curious if that will kind of come up again somehow in in further works or, or in Picard. I'm not sure, but I really loved that they're doing everything they still can, even under this limited mandate they have.
0: Yeah, that was that was something that just kind of came out in the writing. It wasn't something I'd, I'd thought of beforehand. I was writing that particular scene, and as it was playing out, I was thinking to myself, would, you know, Riker and, and a lot of the other captains that we've seen in Starfleet, I don't think they would just stand by, even if they were told, we are not going to help the Romulans. If there was the ability to do some good, even if they were told they wouldn't, they can't do it, they would do it. So we talk about, in that scene, um, we talk about the Enterprise. So the suggestion is that Worf's involved in this. We talk about the, the USS Robinson, which is kind of a nod towards Cisco's ship from the, from the lit verse. I even bring in the Lionheart, which was a ship from one of the novels that I wrote. But the idea that there is this sort of quiet conspiracy of good, of these characters trying to do a little something, even in a small way, if we can just do something to help out, we should do that something.
1: Well, the the Romulans, of course, are the beneficiaries of this help, and they play a huge role in this novel. Uh, The framing story of it I find really interesting, Riker being brought into this tribunal to testify on his actions, and then we join the story six days earlier. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this Romulan commander we meet, Commander Medaka, because... You know, This is something that we've seen a little bit in other venues, and, and my mind, of course, immediately went to uh, the Romulan commander from Balance of Terror, and then there was a fun little connection to him right at the end that mm. completely caught me by surprise. And then I was also thinking of the TNG episode, The Chase, where we have all these uh, species that are chasing these genetic combinations and it's the romulan at the end that contacts picard and says well maybe one day our two species can coexist or whatever and i I really found this character to be really thoughtful and interesting and i loved your exploration of him i was wondering if there was any kind of uh, particular inspiration for his character and and how he interacts with Riker and his crew and kind of catches them a little off guard with his open-mindedness
0: well certainly um it does definitely draw a line back to Mark Leonard's Romulan commander and *Balance of Terror*. You know the idea of the the honourable Romulan, and I think in in later iterations of the Romulans, we kind of lost a little bit of that. And you get the sense of the way that a lot of them are portrayed is that they're all sneaky backstabbers. And don't you know? Don't get me wrong, we do have a sneaky backstabbing Romulan in this story who fulfils that that um, that role. But I wanted to also show that you know not every Romulan is exactly that. I mean, he even has a line in the story where he says the face, the mask we show you is not who we really are. All of us are kind of, you know, putting a mask on because we can't really show our inner selves. But I wanted to create, I guess with Madaka, the, the, the idea at the core was I wanted to create a Romulan mirror of Riker and of the Titan. So it's as close as you could get in the Romulan star empire Navy, having a ship with a diverse crew and a captain who is kind of willing to break the rules a little bit and just kind of does stuff his own way. So I wanted to show what the Romulan equivalent of that would be because one thing that we're guilty of with Star Trek is is this kind of monocultural view, is that every Klingon is a warrior, every Ferengi is sort of like money-grubbing. It's like these not every single one of these species would behave in exactly the same way. So I wanted to show a Romulan with a different kind of nuance to it.
2: I so appreciated that because that's what I found so interesting about this character, that he wasn't the typical evil Romulan and he was different that he was actually has an open mind. And I feel like because of the situation at this time with the supernova coming and seeing what the Federation has done at this point to try to help. And of course they have pulled out, but I feel like if this was just 10 years earlier, he may have responded a little differently, but now because of what the Federation had been doing I think he's more open to a partnership with them.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. It, I think both of them, Riker and Madaka, in this story, they're both good men in bad places dealing with bad situations. And that's kind of something I wanted to put to the fore.
1: I, I loved, you mentioned the Romulan version of a diverse crew as well. I like that. The bridge crew of his warbird includes a Riemann. And uh, I, I love this reference to a Garidian, and I'm, I'm, I played the TNG video game, A Final Unity. Is that, that's where that's from, right? That's right,
0: yeah. Uh, oh, that's excellent. <laughs> and I, I also included um, uh, a character from the Torhai, which is uh, a species that turns up in the last Unicorn Games Star Trek role-playing game as a as a kind of a race that bordered the Romulan Empire. I was looking oh, for very different cool. backgrounds of all these different races that had kind of had connections with the Romulans, and I thought, well, if you had more non-romulans on a romulan ship who would you have and those are the ones that are the most logical to fit in those slots oh
1: yeah. uh, that was that was excellent i, I remembered because i just had to grab a piece of paper i didn't have a notepad it's like Gridian, a final unity
2: question mark so <laughs> i also yeah. like on the titan we saw a kelpian that was pretty cool yeah too. oh yeah that's right too yeah
0: yeah i <laughs> wanted to do that as well because i thought it would be fun to to have a, a kelpian security officer um, and just to make a kind of joke about the idea is that, that you know that everybody thinks that they're a bit cowardly and uh, the ship security chief has a kelpian security officer and everybody kind of gives ribs him for it
1: yeah that's <laughs> nice element. it yeah for sure uh going back to the romulans as well uh so that you you briefly kind of alluded to this other romulan that we get that's more representative of kind of the secretive uh evil in quote marks romulan i guess the tal shiar agent Helek, who is on the warbird as Medaka's first officer and we find out of course she's actually jat vash she's part of this cabal who is anti-synthetic life forms and stuff um she was i don't know why but i had in my head from very early on and i couldn't shake it the um the actress who played uh the Romulan in the Deep Space Nine episode The Search Part One and Two, um who later played Seska Martha Hackett I I don't know why I had her in my head but yeah she's just this deliciously kind of mustache twirly villain who is you know a lot more fun a little off putting and scary towards the end but but. I really liked her kind of plotting in the background, at least for the first part of this novel here.
0: Yeah, my my idea for her was, is I wanted to show you the the kind of the Romulan that you expect to see, which is the kind of the, the backstabbing, sneaky kind of Romulan. But also, I wanted to kind of give her a kind of slightly darker shade because she's a very damaged person. And that, that part of her kind of comes from the, the admonition, which if you recall from um, when, when, when we see people being exposed to this vision that the Zat Vash have uh, in Star Trek Picard, we see people blowing their own brains out because it's so terrifying and it's you know it, it just destroys their minds and only people who are like have incredible mental toughness can even kind of handle this terrible apocalyptic vision. You know, it it either you, you either can deal with it or it drives you crazy and you you kill yourself. And I thought, well, what if there was somebody who kind of fell between those things, who was ver- who was very mentally damaged by this experience, but not enough that they want to sort of phaser themselves, but so that that destruction, that mental destruction, comes slower. So what we see in this story is she's somebody who is very much a zealot, very much kind of following the the line of the the romulan government willing to do anything to advance the cause of her species but as the as the sort of the storyline unfolds the zap Vash part of her starts to fracture even more and more and more and so by the end of the story she's lost any sense of any kind of direction she's just been consumed by this anger and hatred that she's feeling and it grows out of control and that is just you know a, a terrible kind of back effect of having been exposed to the the terror of the admonition
1: an aspect of her character that i kind of thought of after the fact and and a little bit of relevance to some stuff we're seeing in the real world is you know she's very much a an extremist who's been pushed to do really terrible things in the name of her cause and when she does those things and goes too far the people that pushed her to it, her handlers, disavow her and cut her loose and uh, leave her twisting in the wind. Which I, 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 just by coincidence has seemed to really resonate with relevance lately in the last couple of weeks with some of the things we've been seeing happening in certain parts of the world. So I, I was just struck by that parallel reading
2: this.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, she is somebody who I think her her masters see her as a useful tool because she's a zealot and she's so obsessed and and dedicated to this belief that she has now, that she's been changed by being exposed to the admonition. And they see her as somebody who's useful, but kind of like, she's kind of like a wild dog on a chain. And as long as you've got the dog on a chain and you can control it, it's fine. But when the dog gets loose, it could bite anybody. And that's the point where they're like, okay, you know, she's outlived her usefulness. Now she's a danger to everybody. We're gonna cut her loose. And of course, for her, she never sees that because she's so drawn into this belief that she has, that she is correct and right. And she is right in doing anything. I mean, anything and everything, as she says in the story, to to kind of get to the 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 ends, to justify the means of this. She never sees the fact that she is kind of going too far because she's not aware of it, because she has been sort of so mentally damaged by the experience she has. She's lost the ability to be objective about her own situation.
2: I'm almost surprised she wasn't thrown in the brig earlier because she was always going against everything that the commander was telling her to do. She always seemed to be fighting him.
0: I, a lot of that. And the, my sense of that was I modeled her on the idea of the, the political officer that you often see in cold war movies on, you know, like hunt for Red October is a great example of that. You know, on the submarine there's the officer who's the one who's saying, well, we have to follow the party line and we have to do this and we have to do that. And so I, I, I definitely wanted to create a character who was, deliberately being the antagonist and deliberately kind of like rubbing up the rest of the crew the wrong way. That was, you know, from the very beginning, she knows she's in a position where she has that authority that they can't throw her in the brig because if they did, that would make them look disloyal. Because what why have you got to hide? Why are you putting me in the brig? You must be doing something wrong.
1: Yeah. And she's got that kind of backing of the the secret police. Right. So
0: everybody's scared of her.
1: Yeah. and uh yeah and her her allies in the crew too that she's kind of cultivated make that a really dangerous prospect as well for sure um yeah I, I really enjoyed that interplay that kind of cold war feel like you say with the you know everybody has their secrets kind of thing and paired with the idealistic starship commander i thought that was a really uh fun kind of interplay there
2: who that commander at one point says it's a fake <laughs> <laughs> But that was caught that. That,
0: that was de- yeah that was deliberate i mean i was i was writing that scene uh where he says well this is obviously a falsehood and i thought no wait a minute he's gonna say it's a fake and i thought, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought is that too is that too on the nose and i just thought no i i it made me laugh when i thought of it. So i thought no i'm gonna put it in because people would people would like that reference
1: yeah uh it's terrific i love it for sure Well, it's funny. We've been talking about this novel for quite a while, for 43 minutes now, I'm looking at my clock, and we haven't even really touched on kind of the main story of what's going on. We've kind of established the players and stuff, but we have this uh, huge ship that's been constructed out of the Jazari homeworld, and they're kind of the the aliens of the week here. Uh, Initially, they present as these kind of reptilian life forms. Uh, Very secretive, very insular. There are a few Jazari crew members in Starfleet, but they've all left to return home. And uh, the last one is this crew member aboard Titan, and they're returning him home in this story as well, while this ship is uh, being constructed, and there's a disaster on board. And the Titan, of course, responds and helps, and so does the Romulan warbird, much to the surprise of the people on the Titan I wanted to talk a little bit about the Jizari, and they're kind of packing up and moving on to greener pastures, it seems. And the reasons for that are revealed when we kind of learn their true nature a little later. But I kind of want to know where was the idea for for that. Well, I mean, I guess we just got to spoil it because it's kind of the whole background there. They're an android species. They're synthetic life forms, which, of course, figures into the whole Picard narrative and the synth ban in the federation uh and specifically they seem to be the androids that we'd seen previously in the tos episode i mud there's kind of a brief uh reference to that when they first when they coordinate like we see in that episode and they talk about their previous form with the little glowing things around their necks where was the idea to use these guys and and kind of craft the story around them
0: well, the original, the, the first genesis of this idea was a a, a litverse Titan novel that I had, i have been working on. And it was a similar idea about um, a, a generation ship leaving the Federation. Uh, and because I thought, under what circumstances would people decide that they didn't want to be part of the United Federation of Planets? What what would have to happen to them? What decisions would have to be made? And then I put that idea to one side. And then when the Picard uh, series came down, I suddenly realised if you were an android species, you wouldn't want to stick around if you were in a, in a United Federation of Planets, which is suddenly becomes sort of has, has this antipathy towards synthetics. So it seemed to me like it was just a perfect kind of connection of these two ideas. So once I had that idea, I started thinking about, well, who would they be and where would they come from? And that was when I reached back to that uh, the, the androids from the I Mud episode. Because uh, if you watch that show, you know, it's, all, it's that's, that episode's play for laughs. Um, and it is a great fun episode but at the end of it um, we never really go back to those androids and I kind of thought to myself what happened to them after everybody leaves is do they I imagine they were kind of going well that didn't work very well those humans just kind of messed us up so if we want to continue our mission to sort of understand other species we need to kind of look at ourselves and change things up and find a better way to do it and that's how they end up creating this sort of fiction of what the Jizari are so they can interact with us and they're they're pretty much taking a, a leaf out of starfleet's book as well because of course we've seen that in TNG a few times where our characters dress up like an alien species and go to their planet so they can spy on them and I thought well how do you guys like it now someone's doing it to you and so there was a little bit of a little bit of that going on in there so all of these elements came together to kind of dovetail very nicely to to have the Jizari saying you know we don't feel safe here anymore we don't feel like we fit and so we're going to go somewhere else and that is the 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 whole impetus behind them leaving and i mean originally you know they they wouldn't have even told anybody anything about themselves they would have just disappeared and the the time would have just waved them off and that would have been the end of the story and it's only the the disaster that happens on board the ship and the involvement with the romulans that kicks off this other chain of events but when you
2: say they're leaving, they they need to escape this. They actually decide they're going to go back home to where they originated, right? So why didn't they just do that before any of these? Why why did they want to integrate themselves into the Federation and uh, and not go back home originally?
0: Well, previously the the kind of the the prime their prime directive is, is that they are essentially kind of living probes. You know they've been sent to our galaxy to explore and to learn as much as they can about all the different species and that's why they were infiltrating the federation and also other planets you know because we refer to them having sent agents to romulus and the inference areas that probably to the klingon empire and what other you know major interstellar powers are in the in the galaxy so they've been doing this for quite a while and and they hadn't finished their mission you know they would have kept on continuing to explore and, and probably at some future point if the Federation hadn't become anti-synth, they probably would have revealed themselves. And it's an interesting question to consider is how things would have been different because we don't have very good artificial intelligence representation in Star Trek. Is nine times out of 10, AIs are are shown as bad guys. It's only data really kind of in the plus column. You know, if you think of like Law or M5 or even like, you know, uh, cyborgs like the Borg, they're always, it's always kind of shown as a negative thing. Even, I was saying, um, even peanut hamper in um, <laughs> in, in, uh, in Lower Decks is kind of a dick, you know? It's, it's so, AIs don't really get portrayed very positively in Star Trek. And I, I just started thinking about them as saying, you know, you can imagine if you were part of that species and you suddenly realize that your neighbors have decided that they hate you, how? What would you want to do? You wouldn't want to stick around anymore. And it's kind of the collective of has made that decision. Is look, maybe this isn't the best place for us, and maybe we should go home. And they don't really want to, but it's you know they feel like they're under pressure to to leave this environment because if they get discovered, something terrible will happen. And that does that's what happens. Is you know their their true nature is discovered, and they are placed immediately in this terrible threat.
2: Well and they want to leave too because they see how the federation is responding to synthetics but at the same time is trying to assure them that you know the the federation wouldn't go against them like you know this is a, people are scared right now but if anything the Romulans just show that it's still not safe because even if the federation were accepting of them the Romulans or at least some Romulans aren't accepting so it's a dangerous situation
0: regardless And the Jazari are very much, they're very secretive, very suspicious. And that kind of comes from their original incarnation in Iron Mud. Because if you look at the, the way that just Kirk, Spock, and a couple of humans completely mess up their entire civilization in the space of a few days in that episode, and then they leave. You can imagine what kind of impact that would have had on all of those androids going, well, these humans... You know, they they almost kind of made us all malfunction. We can't have that happen again. So they're actually they actually see aliens as although their programming is saying you know you you have to learn more about them and you have to understand and assimilate sort of like into their cultures. They're also afraid of outsiders because they're afraid of how it might force them to kind of lose control again. And of course, that's something they never wanted to happen in the first place. So they're being pulled in two different directions. You know, they want to pro- they want to complete their programming, but they're also concerned about preserving the sanctity of their own species
1: i also enjoy the the slow burn of the revelation of their true natures and we get little hints throughout and that sort of thing and one of the characters that we meet that bruce briefly alluded to earlier is this uh artificial intelligence that refers to itself to thad as friend and this kind of uh synthetic art artificial intelligence and reading this this is just kind of an aside i i had in my mind the voice of the sphere data from discovery for some reason like it had that same kind of caring personality almost and i was wondering like how did that how did that part of the the jazari civilization how did that kind of come about and thad's interaction with this ai
0: well that came from uh, again me thinking about the the aftermath of the 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 mud androids is you know when you see them in that show is that they have like a central coordinating kind of like the equivalent of I guess like a like a systems admin right if you're thinking about it in, in technical terms and because they have this one thing that's coordinating all of the androids their 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 society and their system is kind of uh susceptible to being affected negatively so I was thinking, well, logically extrapolating, what would you do to fix that? So they kind of externalized that into this larger kind of AI, which is what Friend is. So the the individual androids can have a a greater degree of autonomy and individuality. So Friend represents kind of like a, not really like like a benign version of the Borg queen, I would think. If you look at the, the similar kind of collective that you have with the book not exerting a controlling influence but exerting a kind of moderating influence enabling them to sort of like handling basically the kind of busy work of coordinating their collective while the androids are freer to have more rounded more emotive personalities excellent
1: well i i really enjoy like how that all kind of comes together and and these little revelations of of where they come from in prior Star Trek. I think that's a lot of fun for, of course, the super to kind of pick that out and, and see that. I love that idea. Just the the basic idea too, of a civilization that just wants to get away from the Federation. And these decisions that they've made seem to have these kind of knock on ripple effects that, you know, I'm sure weren't considered when, you know, the Federation Council and Starfleet Command made the decision to ban synths and all this sort of stuff. And I wonder if there's something there about how, you know, small decisions have these huge rippling effects across civilizations and, and mindsets and, and how we deal with the universe around us. I think that's a that's an important lesson to learn in today's world as, as it has been timelessly, like and at any time, really.
0: Yeah, I do feel that that idea of like, small things having large effects. I think that's something that that definitely is a, a, a recurring theme in the Picard TV show. So I wanted to echo that in the novel. Well, uh,
1: there were some other bits that I wanted to kind of pick apart that I, that I loved. So first of all, at the end in this framing uh, story, we learn the identity of Riker's unseen advocate here, who, of course, is Ambassador Spock. Uh, who will, we know, go on to play a role in the whole Romulan supernova disaster and split off and, and that whole thing? Uh, where did that decision come from to kind of bring him in and, and have him play a part in this story?
0: That was kind of in the, the discussions that I had with Kirsten as we were talking about who this person could be. Um, and I just thought it would be fun to throw Spock in there as a, as a surprise kind of rug pull at the end of the story just to, to sort of mix things up. And it felt, it just felt like one of those things that suddenly seemed like, it makes sense it would be him, is that, you know, that he's kind of at large out there interfering in stuff and basically kind of trying to solve problems wherever he sees them. And I imagine Spock hearing about this situation with the, the Romulans and, 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 and the Titan and thinking, well, I can help out there. And because he's revered, they allow him to sort of take this role and he helps Riker kind of slightly along his way. But also part of that is just kind of ticking a few boxes to remind people that Spock is still out there at this point in the timeline and that he's still doing what he's doing. One thing that Kirsten specifically wanted me to talk about, to address, was the fact that we know about the the attempted Romulan-Vulcan reunification movement—we saw that in TNG—and then nobody really talks about it again until hundreds of years into the future. And suddenly, we're seeing Unification Part Three in Discovery. So we wanted to say that you know, even with the all the the stuff of the supernova that was going on, and even with everything that happens with Spock at the beginning of the inception of the kind of the Kelvin timeline, he, right up to that point, he was still working towards Vulcan-Romulan reunification. That's not been forgotten. The supernova doesn't kind of wipe that out. There are still people in the Romulan society still working towards that, and Spock is there still doing that. So part of it is to show that he's still on that, but also showing that he's, he's also working towards trying to find a solution to the, the oncoming supernova problem as well.
2: Which I like how he wants to employ Jordi LaForge to help build his ship which comes from the countdown comics.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's a, I I really like that idea when I I remember reading the countdown comics and the idea that the jellyfish ship that Spock flies in uh, the, in the first Kelvin timeline movie was designed by Geordie LaForge. I thought that was a really cool kind of nod. So I wanted to put that in the book because I thought it was a great idea.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely appreciated that little tie in there. That was, that was nice. Another little tiny thing that uh kind of smacked me up upside the head when I realized it was we had this security officer um Hernandez, and I was like oh okay this this character's been appearing and then her first name gets mentioned, and I apologize if the pronunciation is wrong, but macha macha Hernandez is the security officer's name and now that is the original name for Tasha Yar right. in the, the show Bible for the next generation. Is that
0: correct? That's right. And uh, in fact, that's not the, it's not the first time I've done that in it, it, it's, it's a, it's a real kind of deep dive nerd gag for people who have, you know, know, know their backstory. Um, yeah. That was the, the original idea for the character who would have been security chief on the enterprise D kind of modeled a little bit on the character of Vasquez from aliens. And uh, as I understand it, so the story goes, is that um, Denise Crosby tried out for the role and they said, well, she's not Hispanic, so she can't be a Hispanic character. So we'll rename the character Tasha Yar and we'll change her backstory to better reflect Denise Crosby as an actor. And I always had this idea afterwards that I thought I like the idea that maybe Marco Hernandez and Tasha Yar both went for the same job on the Enterprise D and Tasha got it and Hernandez didn't. So there's been this other officer floating around the Star Trek universe who didn't get the job on the Enterprise, but has been doing other stuff. And I've been looking for an opportunity to just bring her into a story at some point. And I needed a security guy character. I thought, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to to bring that character back out of the kind of the limbo. You know, she was Hernandez was on the cutting room floor of Star Trek, and I'm like, well, I want to bring her back in some form. And it's not the first time I've done this either. I, I did do it in an alternative universe story as well. When I wrote one of the, the Myriad Universe books, there's a character who turns up, um, Constantin Amuros, which is Julian Beshe- the original version of Julian Bashir's character.
2: Oh, right. So I did yeah. that there as
0: well. As, as I brought back that character too because I just thought it would be fun to bring in these alternate versions of these characters. I've read those, you know, those, those early drafts of the series Bible, when you get versions of the characters who are familiar to what we know, but slightly different. And I, I like the idea that those characters are, are somewhere out in the Star Trek universe. We just haven't seen them yet. Uh, I, l- yeah. I love that. <laughs> I'm so glad
2: you brought this up, Dan, because I read this book a couple of weeks ago and then I was going through what I've highlighted in the book. And I, I highlighted Hernandez and I'm like, why did I highlight that? And I couldn't remember why I did. It, and that was the reason I remember I caught that, but I couldn't remember why I highlighted it. So yeah, that was really crafty. I love it. That's excellent. I, I love
1: the idea. Like we've caught a bunch of these. I imagine there's a bunch that we probably didn't catch because like those deep dive references are so great. And, uh, I I'd love for any of our listeners who have caught any out there, uh, to let us know what we may have missed. Cause, uh, yeah, I, I don't imagine you're going to reveal all of your tricks. You're a good magician, so
0: <laughs> I, you know it's it's, it's part of the, the the fun of of doing that kind of those little sort of Easter egg jokes. Is if if you get the joke, it will raise a smile, and if you don't get the joke, it doesn't affect the story. It kind of goes right over your head, and, and, and you carry on. I love putting those little references in there as a kind of little reward. It's a sort of nod and a wink. To, to people who are deeply geeky, geeky like we are right who can and pick that kind of stuff out so it's, it's always fun to find a, a place I would never like kind of shoehorn one in you know forcing it in It's just sometimes there comes a moment where I think oh it's a great place to just put a little joke in and uh you know and, and people will will say to me like does this mean this like yes it does you win a prize well <laughs> done you found the thing Excellent. Speaking of
2: a nod and a wink, when this torture scene of the Jazari where Helic is taking his eye out and all Ooh. that I was like, this is really gruesome. And I thought, are you doing that because we've seen some gruesome things like that in Picard, or is just that a coincidence?
0: There's a little bit, I mean, um, Picard definitely has a more adult tone to it. So um, there is a little bit more violence and a little bit more swearing in this book a couple more curse words that maybe I might've used in a, in another Star Trek level, because I felt like that is reflective of the tone of the show that this book is based on.
2: Yeah. That's what it felt to me that it, the tone of the book does feel like the tone of the show for sure.
1: Mm. I did also appreciate the, uh, the shout out to uh, Kirsten Byers nickname on the Trek BBS <laughs> and, and elsewhere. Uh, in the dedication, I I appreciated that. I thought that was a really nice touch, and and made this old Trek BBSer really smile. <laughs> that's
0: cool. Well, you know, um, Kirsten's done. She, she's kind of like she's our hero, you know, because she's she made the jump from being a uh, Star Trek novelist to being Star Trek producer, TV writer. And every time I see her name on an episode of the show, I always feel like you know, that's my that's my friend Kirsten. And I always feel like her her kind of stepping up to the big leads justifies and validates so much of what we have done as star trek lit writers by kind of bringing it into the the mainstream canon trek as it were
1: yeah absolutely i e- even our kind of you know existence at the fringes of the trek lit world because we get to interact with all of you uh seeing her name up there also just like oh i've talked to her a few times that's awesome she made it that's so cool so yeah i i feel a little bit of that
2: <laughs> and some of the events of this novel could be referenced in a future episode so you could be contributing to a future episode at some point
0: i mean who knows you know it's it's nice to see um the door swings both ways now More towards us than towards the TV show, but there is is a degree of interaction between the books and the TV show, the ongoing shows. In fact, more so than any other time franchise I have ever worked on. And, And that is great, because it allows us to give the whole thing a feeling of a sense of contiguousness, that it feels much more authentic, because we are kind of working as closely as we possibly can to make sure all these stories marry up. And, you know, if um, something from the books gets mentioned in the TV show, um, I would be so happy to see that because, again, it feels like it legitimizes what we do.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Well, one thing this book has done is it's made me want to go and do another rewatch of Star Trek Picard. So I'm sure the the people over at CBS are happy to hear people say things like that. So, <laughs> Um, was there anything about the story that we haven't touched on that you would like to bring up that, uh, that maybe we haven't hit yet?
0: I think you guys just, as usual, you've done a, a terrific deep dive on this. It's, uh, one of the reasons I always love talking to you guys is because you get right into the weeds. And, <laughs> uh, and one thing that's, you know, sometimes you, I put this stuff in a book and I think, are people going to get what I'm getting out there? Are people going to see the point I'm trying to make? And you never really know as a writer, you know, you put it on the page You send it out into the world and you hope that people get it. And it's always nice to know that, oh, you did get it. You got that joke. You understood where I was coming from. So that's, that's, that's great. That's very rewarding to know that, you know, you you got it. Thank you.
1: Oh, I mean, you know, thank you for this wonderful book. It's a great way to kick off the 2021 Star Trek lit year. I I think it's an incredible novel. I really, really enjoyed it. So, uh, you know, just a little bit of a taste of the old Treklet world, but also bringing us into the new one. I think it works on just so many levels. So I I really enjoyed this one.
2: I loved it too. And it was even more than I wanted. Like it, it met my, it exceeded my expectations. I'm not just saying that, but again, I was just looking at this. Oh, it's a, it's going to be just really just a tight novel in this Picard continuity. But when it started touching on things in Picard, I realized how much this does connect. And I really was getting into it. So I loved it.
0: Oh, you guys, thank you. That's really really nice to hear It's So it's so rewarding to know that, that, you know, we we come into this and we, as the writers, we we try to strive for a story that will affect people and move people and and just give them some fun, action and adventure. And like I said before, you can never know how that will hit. So to know that I kind of did my job right That's great. Thank you very much.
2: Yes. And for CBS who's listening, we're waiting for James to do a follow-up book. (laughs) So we'll read it. (laughs)
1: Speaking of which, uh, do you have anything on the horizon that our listeners would be interested in checking out or, uh, you know,
0: what a clever segue that is into the next possible (laughs) thing I could talk about. Um, I am working on another Star Trek project at the moment, but I can't say much more than that. Uh, I would say, keep an eye on things Probably later in the year, you're going to learn a little bit more about that, but stuff is coming.
1: Excellent. Can't wait for that. And uh, if people wanted to keep up to date with what's going on with you and maybe see where you would announce that online, is there anywhere that uh, our listeners can follow you?
0: Sure. Best place to find me is uh, my Twitter feed, which is at JMSwallow. I pretty much post there kind of a couple of times every week. And uh, you can look at my blog which is on my website, which is jswallow.com, which has all the information there about all my fiction, including my Star Trek book and everything else. Uh, You can come on there and find uh, everything you might need to know about the work that I do.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This is a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, for anyone out there, if you've listened to this whole episode without reading the novel, as usual, I question your life choices. But (laughs) if you haven't yet, go pick it up, go read it. It's excellent. Uh, Bruce, where can people find you online?
2: I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and I'm occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast, and I'm on a recent episode of the 602 Club talking about Star Wars, The High Republic, Light of the Jedi, that novel that uh, recently came out, uh, kicking off the High Republic novel-verse, I guess you could call it. And, uh, and I'm hoping that James writes a Star Wars novel someday. You and me both. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I would definitely pick that up.
1: Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm on YouTube.com slash Kertrats Productions. You can find the show on Twitter at Positively Trek and our Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. Please join us there. Just search for Positively Trek on Facebook. Join the discussion group. We'll let you right in. We have lots of great discussions and comment on the thread for this episode. Tell us what you thought of The Dark Veil. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in the next episode. Until then, as always, stay positive.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.